A very warm welcome to the sixth session of IPS's Singapore Perspectives Conference 2021 Reset. Uh, my name is Kalpana Vignesa and I'm a research fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. I will be your moderator today. This session is entitled Soul of the Nation. And before I introduce our session and our speakers, please let me run through some brief administrative matters. Please do submit your questions for the panelists via pigeonhole in the question submission section on the forums page. Uh, you can do this at any time during the session. We invite all at our conference to contribute to the discussions in a respectful manner and um, focus at the issues at hand. IPS does reserve the right to act in any way to ensure that this is always the case um, on the Q&A functions and on our conference site. Now, let us begin. This forum focuses on what contributes to the well-being and the soul of the nation, not only for now, but looking well into the future as well. COVID-19 and the various restrictions and changes to daily life that it brought about has forced people all over the world to confront how seriously they value their mental health, how much they value communal bonds, and on an existential level, what it means to be healthy and alive. This is therefore a different type of Singapore perspective session to one that you might be accustomed to. Here, we don't have any discussions and we don't have speakers who share a field of expertise. What we do have is a specially chosen panel of four speakers who have come from diverse fields, that of the arts, the sports, mental health, and media and cultural studies. The aim here is not to be exhaustive in covering all fields that may be related to well-being and soul, but rather we wanted to bring you a meaningful fireside chat between people who have dedicated their lives to understanding and creating societies that feel well and have meaning. Um, before I introduce our interesting speakers, let me briefly tell you a little bit about myself. I am an ethnographer and I'm very lucky to spend my work life watching and learning from different cultures and how they work, play and live. Um, another big part of my life is that I'm a parent to a young child. He's three years old, teenager, you know. Anyway, I share this because as a relatively new parent at this time, I do wonder what well-being will look like in the next few decades. We moved our family back to Singapore after I had been in the diaspora for a period of 20 years. And having made that conscious choice, I think about questions like, what connects us to one another in Singapore? And can we create new ways to look after ourselves and the people that we share lives with? So I'm very excited to be here hosting this conversation for us. And also without further ado, let me introduce our speakers. Janice Cole will be a familiar face to many of you. She is a well-respected Singaporean actress who has starred in multiple television shows and has performed in over 50 theatre productions, both here and overseas. She also featured in Crazy Rich Asians as Felicity Young. Janice also served as a nominated member of parliament from 2011 to 2014, where she championed the arts and the creative sectors in Singapore. And as an MP, she emphasized the value of literature and the humanities in Singapore's education system. And she called for more support for local music, advocated for greater heritage conservation, 
and she raised questions about the regulation of the arts in Singapore. Asahi Takano is partner and head of the Asia Pacific Office of Portis Consulting, which is a leading global management consultancy dedicated to sport and physical activity. Uh, Asahi is particularly interested in developing the positive social impact of mass participation in sport and works with sport leaders across Asia, including governments, charities, public bodies, and federations. Under Portis, he helped to launch the Active Citizens Worldwide, which partners with different cities, including Singapore, Auckland, Stockholm, and London, to develop strategies that promote physical activity. Essentially, Asahi is the person to talk to you about how important sports is in addressing more than just the individual's needs, but the community's needs as well. Munirasa Winslow is Senior Consultant Psychiatrist and Chief Executive Officer at Promises Healthcare. And he was previously the Chief of the Addiction Medicine Department at the Institute of Mental Health and played a pioneering role in setting up the National Addictions Management Service. Um, Muni, I just wanted to say to you, I personally know people whose lives have been turned around with the help of NAMS, so thank you from the community for that. Um, Muni is also a fully qualified psychiatrist specializing in addiction and impulse control disorders, and he has published widely on general psychology and addiction issues. And last but not least, we have Audrey Yue, who is Professor in Media, Culture and Critical Theory and Head of Communications and New Media at NUS. Uh, there's a long list of, um, of titles that Audrey has and I don't want to go through all of them. But the important thing is to tell you that um, her research spans the humanities and social sciences. It cult covers cultural policy and development, uh, transnational Chinese media cultures, Asian gender studies, and Audrey, like me, um, has lived away. She lived in Australia for 30 years where she was the professor in cultural studies and the director of, um, of the research unit in public cultures at the University of Melbourne. She has also worked with government and worked on the Multicultural Arts Policy Advisory Committee and has worked with various Australian national, state and local government agencies. So as you will see, we have a very distinguished panel for people from different areas. And I really want to throw the gates open because I've spoken enough for now. Um, and the first question that we are going to explore uh, tonight is really for each of our panelists to share with us their own definitions, their own what it means to them when someone says soul of the nation. What does that mean to them? So um, I'd like to open with Audrey. Uh, thanks. Thanks to IPS uh, for inviting me here to speak. Um, I, I think of uh, the soul of the nation or soul in particular, first um, through spirituality as the kind of immaterial aspect of what makes us human. The soul of the nation then would be the emotional and intellectual energy that binds us as a people and a community. And in that sense, then the soul of the nation would refer to the essence of the nation. So what constitutes the essence of our nation? So the, the, if I have a one-word answer, then my one-word one answer would be culture. Culture binds people to place and in turn creates our belonging and identity to nation. So culture then is the essence, the soul of the nation. 
So allow me to very quickly talk about culture in two ways, right? The first one is traditional culture, you know, what's been called the anthropology of culture, right? To refer to the customs, laws, and morals of a particular group of people. So Singapore is a land, a land of old and new migrants. Through our ancestors who have arrived here, we carry on the traditions of our roots. So we continue to maintain traditional cultures, but also mix them with new practices and meanings. And this is important to the essence of who we are as a rich multicultural nation with diverse ethnic groups. So that's traditional culture in one way. Then the second way to think about culture as the essence you know, of the soul of the nation is to think about everyday culture. So that includes you know, all the ways we find common meanings in our whole way of life, as well as to arts and learning and the common processes of discovery and creativity. And this can include all the organizations that produce culture to make culture a way of life, the structure of the family, the, the structure of our institutions that express our social relationships and the characteristic forms that we speak in order to, for us to uh, be able to communicate with each other. So here then, everyday culture is a practice of everyday life, right? And everyday culture um, is very much a st structured in social exchange and communication. So this way of thinking about culture then shapes um, individuals and groups that allow us to socially connect and thrive. So there are many examples here, you know, our shared family values, the social resilience of our multicultural communities, the specificity of the language we speak, for example, Singlish is quintessentially Singaporean. Singlish is the soul of the nation in a way, right? To, to the more formal organizations of arts, learning and culture that continue to, to produce and shape our whole way of life and their common meanings. All these and more make up the essence of the nation. So in short then, culture is the soul of the nation. Traditional culture, everyday culture, arts, learning and creativity are essential to the nation. They are vital to the soul of the nation. Thank you so much, um, Audrey. Uh, Asahi, I'd like to go to you. Tell us what your version of soul of the nation is. Thanks, Kalpana, and good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I guess I'm certainly not going to be able to give a, a such a beautifully academic um, answer as Audrey was able to provide. But um, from my perspective, I think of the soul of an A nation to be perhaps the things that are at the top of the kind of hierarchy of values, norms, traditions, cultural capital, social capital, that are the very last things that people are you know, reluctant to let go of. And I think in a way that often manifests itself under duress. Um, I think when there is say a natural disaster or obviously what we're all living through at the moment with COVID, I would say soul, the soul of the nation, it sort of becomes a little bit bare and we start seeing what matters to people more and less and when people have to make choices. So I guess that's different for every culture, every nation. And as a relatively new arrival to Singapore, um, perhaps I can bring a bit more of an international perspective and especially perspective through sport perhaps. So I would say that in many cultures, sport is quite high up there in that sort of hierarchy of things that people are you know, not willing to let go very easily. So perhaps a good example, we might think of Brazil and their football. Um, we might think of New Zealand and their rugby, um, or just a, a very sort of local example from Japan, which is uh, the annual high school baseball tournament that you know, actually over, it's been going on for decades and decades, and it's an absolute 
central part of the summer of a, of a Japanese um, in, individual. So those things, I think, play an important part. Um, and as I say, under duress, it tends to bear out. So right now, if we look at the UK, under the most severest situations in COVID, professional football matches are still being played. That is still the last thing that's going to get stopped because it is such an important part to people's lives and a part of the culture. Now, looking at Singapore, and I, you know, and this is very much an outside in view, so um, uh, forgive me if it's sort of um, partial in picture, but perhaps anecdotally, one of the things that have always struck me in Singapore is, you know, I remember going into shops and every now and again, you'll try and buy something and the auntie or the uncle in that shop would actually dissuade you from buying that thing because it's cheaper down the road. You know? <laughs> and I find that almost, you know, something I've not come across in many places. But to me, that hints at a certain Singaporean notion of solidarity. You know, this idea of kind of, you know, we look after each other and you no, know, we don't want any of us getting ripped off by anyone else and, and so on and so forth. So I think that cuts to a lot of, the things that Singapore, you know, renowns itself for in terms of the multiculturalism, the, you know, focus on well-being and equality across society, et cetera, et cetera. So that would be my just um, hint of that. And then perhaps we talk about this a little bit later on, but I think historically, if we took the traditional notion of sport, I wouldn't say, you know, it, it would perhaps feature that high up in Singapore's hierarchy of things that, you know, would be uh, held on to in crisis. But I think the world is changing and the definition of sport both in participation, consumption, and physical activity is changing. And I believe that perhaps in the future, uh, sport and physical activity will play actually quite an important part perhaps in Singapore's future definition of itself. Thanks so much, Asahi. That was very interesting. Uh, I liked your, um, your professional football example, because um, yeah, it, you know, it, it is still being played. Um, I'd like to get Muni in at this point. Muni, can you tell us what your version of Soul of the Nation is? Sure. Um, thanks, Kalpana. Actually, you know, most of what I wanted to say has already been said. That is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> All that about, um, you know, the soul being the immaterial part of our being, the spiritual and other essence, which do not include just the possessions or the material stuff. Uh, but also the emotional and intellectual energy and capacity that people have. And, and, you know, a lot of the things that draw people to Singapore are not just the, um, the ability to make money or to have material possessions. A lot of the time, it is also the uh, understated uh, parts of being part of a community that you like the values of. Early on, you used the word fireside chat. And that's a very American thing because I don't think we got too many firesides here. <laughs> but it also tells you that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we do have as a nation. And what Asahi said earlier on is brought together by so many different things like sports in the 1970s and 80s, when everybody used to go out to cheer for the uh, local Singapore team. Uh, today, we also see that, by the way, but uh, more online because sports gaming online is a huge thing. Yeah. And uh, up to a few minutes ago, I was online on an online game fighting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I must confess that uh, semi-addict, I'm training <laughs> myself to know how my patients feel. <laughs> 
now, about the soul of the nation, the other part is, you know, it's what is it that causes you to want to come back to this spot of the world? And for me, it was simple because I was given offers to stay on in the country where I went and did uh, a, a attachment or program. But the things that will bring you back are, as mentioned, um, the, the community, the family, the value systems that we share, the fact that you can walk out, my children can walk out on the streets any time of day or night and not be afraid of uh, having drugs or other things, uh, people come out and uh, afflict them or disturb them. The fact that I can wake up at any time of day and night and uh, decide that I want to have a prata or mee goreng and I can find it. <laughs> and that's another part to the soul. I, I know I usually will talk mainly on the emotional and resilience parts and that's part of it too because just today before I, um, my last patient, he was talking about how he had a really difficult time um, because of some family uh, issue that had happened. And he didn't know what to do, but four o'clock in the morning started sobbing. And so he called um, SOS and they helped him through the, the issue. Of course, they asked him um, on a scale of one to five, how much do you think you feel like uh, hurting yourself or committing suicide? And I must say, intelligent people, they think very fast and said, hmm, if I say too, too close to five, they will call the police on me. So I'll tell them one, but I just need somebody to listen to me and share my pain at this moment. Which is, I thought, one of the great things, because in this country, no matter what time it is, or, well, not no matter what time, but you know that there will be support. Uh, and we saw that in this covid Within the first few weeks of the lockdown starting, uh, all the psychologists, the various ministries, the uh, other people started putting together teams. I remember in the churches and the mosques, there were also teams of just befrienders, uh, manning hotlines to be able to talk to people and uh, anybody who has a need to be able to just call and just talk about what they are feeling. And those are the things to me, besides the food, which is very important to me, those are the parts which are the uh, essence of a nation or where we know we can feel there is community, there is a Gotong Royong spirit. We were going to get through this, whatever crisis comes at us, we are going to get through it uh, as a community. Thanks. You know, um, it is very interesting hearing what you had to say because it made me reflect, like, why did I use the word fireside chat and the reason I used it is because we have people from other parts of the world around us and you know we are in, in Singapore we live these very cosmopolitan lives and we are sort of we everything is mixed up and it is an interesting question I think for us as to how to maybe better meld the two because when you say Gotong Royong spirit I feel like a seven-year-old again, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, it's that sort of more the past, um, but actually it's still there. It just feels like maybe a little bit to me anyway, maybe it feels a little bit lost because we are this bigger, more um, complex and more worldly place now than we were many, you know, a few decades ago. So that was an interesting reflection here when you talk. Janice, please come in. Tell us what 
what is your take on Soul of the Nation? I mean, for me, um, I don't disagree with everything that everyone has already said. Um, just to add on, for me, I see Soul as the self with a capital S, right? It is, um, it is the voice in our head. It is our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our desires, our memories, our perceptions. It is the part that is not the body. And, and then the, the question I had was, can a nation have a soul? If we are all individuals, if we all have our individual desires and memories and perceptions, can the nation have a collective soul? If it does, then perhaps it speaks to what lies in common, the commonalities that underlie those individual perceptions, the commonalities that are based on where we come from geographically, who we are culturally, and our shared environment. And therefore, I see the soul of a society as um, referring to the way this group of people then look at the world, how they make sense of their shared experience, their memories together, and the per perception of the landscape that they are familiar with, and how they feel about living with each other. So in a sense, um, I, 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 do, I do agree with um, you know, Audrey, that culture very much sort of manifests all that, that it is the balm, it, is, it includes our everyday culture, but it is also food and sports and the arts. It is where we feel most at home, that we are closest to in our hearts. Um, with regard to the arts specifically, which is the industry I come from, what is art? It, it brings into existence what only exists as pure potentiality, as pure idea, right? So the artist is then the agent of change. The artist is the maker, the creator, the interpreter. If the artist is an individual and drawing from his own or her own perceptions, then they do so tapping you know, tapping into the consciousness of other people who also share those same feelings and, and, and ideas. Um, and when, of course, art is done well, then it speaks to the zeitgeist. It, it, it becomes the barometer and takes the pulse of that community. Um, and I think when it's, done, when it's done well, it helps us feel less alone. It helps us recognize, hey, that's me too. And if you don't feel the same way. At least it gave you a chance to walk a mile in another person's shoes. So good art connects people, people who were once strangers to each other. And how much more do we need it now when we are so much more isolated um, in our own spaces, in our own heads? So that's, um, you know, that's, that's where I come from. Janice, this is like the, this is the perfect segue because I, um, you know, I really want us to spend some time now thinking about um, the challenges and the opportunities, given where we are right now. Um, you know, we're thinking about this question of what it means, what the soul of the nation means, whether we have a soul of the nation, and really trying to relate it to well-being. And, you know, you've kind of opened this, the, the door to the conversation on, like in your area, the arts, you know, what are some of the, 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 the challenges, the opportunities? Because we are in this sort of, it's not, it's not pre-COVID, it's not post-COVID, it's COVID time, but it's setting, you know, there are new challenges that have come about in the last year. Um, 
and we don't know when these challenges will no longer exist if life will go back to what it used to be or be something completely different but maybe i'll let, get you to keep expanding upon the arts for a little while in terms of what you think are some of the difficulties but also the opportunities of this new and very unusual moment um I mean, in a way, artists communicate with their audiences and they are speaking heart to heart. They are speaking soul to soul. That's why they do what they do. Um, I think COVID has presented, I've kind of like thought of three threats and three opportunities, you know, and, um, and, and sometimes they kind of contradict each other in a sense. Yeah. Um, the three threats are firstly, a certain loss of community and a loss of um, an arts going habit because we have been restricted from communing. We've been restricted from going back to uh, the theater, to the galleries in, in, in the, the kind of numbers that we are used to. And of course, you know, um, in the live performing arts, we don't just consume, we commune. So I was at the theatre yesterday, actually, and um, the experience is wholly, almost, you know, 360 degrees different because if there's only 30 to 50 people in the room and we are not allowed to really mingle and talk to each other, it's one thing to just see the art on your own, but it's another to be able to say hi to somebody else, you know, watch someone else, you know, be moved by it, go over and ask them how they were feeling or why they felt that way. And just sort of go for supper after that to talk about the show, all mm -hmm. that is now lost. So I feel like we've kind of lost a certain community around the arts going um, ritual. Um, and, and I know that, you know, uh, many artists, administrators, agencies have been spending a lot of time building an audience for the arts, building an appreciation for the arts. And I, there's an anxiety in some of us that that might start to reverse because we get into a habit and the comfort of, of seeking you know, online entertainment at home, watching things digitally that we forget what it feels like to, or the, the, the draw, we forget the magnetism and the draw and the magic mm -hmm. of watching something happen right now, live in front of your eyes in the flesh, which is, has its own surreal kind of magical transformation. Secondly, I think that um, there is a threat of losing a, a very critical platform that is a source of comfort and also a source of constructive criticism. So the arts, as you know, can uplift and entertain and really help us forget our troubles. We go there to cry together, to laugh together, and it, we need it now. But it also is a platform which never shies away from talking about the hard topics, the, the challenging themes that society needs to face up to confront. It is unburdened by the controls of mass media um, and, and digital broadcast because it is targeted at small groups, because it is speaking directly to people who, you know, um, commune in much smaller crowds. And therefore, we feel there is some agency, some artistic license to speak to, to darker subjects, which society needs if it wants to evolve to progress. So that's the second threat. And lastly, I think just very practically speaking, 
as a result of COVID, a lot of jobs have been lost. And I feel that the talent pool has kind of, uh, may kind of shrink organically because people have had to pivot. And um, when things go back to normal, I'm not sure if we might have the human resources there who are you know, ready and able to jump back into the scene uh, in the same way that we had. Of course, in terms of opportunities, the digital outreach with a lot of art going online right now is amazing. You know, um, Emily of Emerald Hill was um, by Wild Rice and played by Ivan Hing was uh, archived and streamed online when we were in lockdown. And in the theater, it might have played over three weeks, you know, 200 audiences a night, but online it could reach 150,000 people across 30 different countries. I mean, that's ridiculous, you know, for a small theater company. I mean, it's a major theater company in Singapore, but honestly on a global scale, you know, we are still a, a, a small theater company. To reach that number of audiences is, 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 is really amazing. And there's so much opportunity to cross border, to tell our stories uh, internationally. And um, the second opportunity is that I see a lot of young artists actually feeling very comfortable breaking boundaries, experimenting, going online, going offline, going live, you know, um, working with all the multimedia that they can master and can afford <laughs> and telling stories in any number of ways that, uh, that allows them to be creative. So I think that's quite special that um, has forced young artists to be nimble to respond to the circumstances, and I'm very excited about that. And lastly, I feel, and what I feel is most important is that this is a chance to build a new narrative for Singapore, um, a new chapter in our story. I think we've been um, living with some narratives that are post-colonial, post-65, about our nation building. And suddenly we now, um, the silver lining is now we have an opportunity to forge a new narrative that resonates with a younger generation of Singaporeans, and this, they have a chance to, to write that as their struggle, as, their, um, as, as how they have built resilience and their fortitude uh, in this time. Yeah, that's me. Sorry, I went on to, for too long. <laughs> no, thank you, Janice. That was, um, that was really interesting. Um, in fact, uh, as part of, so Singapore Perspectives is part of a larger uh, reimagining Singapore project, and we actually kicked things off um, last year in November, the Young Singaporeans Conference, and that again, you know, like when you reference young people, their struggles, but also their willingness to try new things and get out there. So I can connect um, what you're saying to that experience because I spent um, three days with them and was very inspired by the young people at that conference. But let's hear from um, Audrey, do you want to come in and tell us about some of the challenges and opportunities from your perspective? Uh, yeah, sure. So now I change hats. I will put on my media and communications hat. Previously, I was talking from uh, my culture studies hat. So uh, challenges and opportunities. Um, I want to talk about two things. Uh, first, uh, in the media space. And the second thing is in the communication space, right? So in the media space, um, and everyone's kind of known about it, you know, sort of like before COVID, you know, we see the world experiencing a kind of rapid digitalization, the fourth industrial revolution, if you want to call it that. So whether the third industrial revolution was really about, you know, sort of uh, automated production, 
the fourth industrial revolution is really about a digital revolution using technology to change our physical, you know, digital, biological ways of life, right? Through all sorts of things, internet of things, artificial intelligence, robotics, and quantum computing, for example. You know, all of that, you know, have already disrupted economies and societies. So COVID came along, it has accelerated the fourth industrial revolution with the digitalization of all aspects of work, study, life and home. So this is an opportunity. So everyone is working and studying from home. We are also shopping from home. So COVID has brought about digital transformation. So to give you a sense of the digital uptake, for example, you know, the, uh, if you track the profits of the big tech, just Google and Amazon alone in the last um, financial quarter, um, you know, profits of in the tune of 30 to 60% more than, you know, previously. So every, every quarter exponential rise of 30 to 60% uh, profit. So that's, you know, the kind of uptake uh, in uh, digital technology. Singapore, Singapore, we're very quick um, uh, adopters, high uptake, you know, high internet penetration. Uh, I think January uh, uh, last year, we have about 88% uh, penetration rate, you know, we will, I think we will continue to digitalize and these trends, right, in the new normal, the kind of hybrid working and studying, uh, they, they will be here to stay. Uh, E-commerce, you know, e-shopping is already here permanently. So that's the opportunity. Um, then the challenge in the space is that COVID has accentuated our country's digital divide. There are pockets of people in various communities who do not have digital access. And um, in fact, in, uh, during the, the circuit breaker, my department started to look for secondhand laptops because we realized that there were a group out there uh, with not enough laptops uh, that the kids cannot even do remote learning. So we were hunting around all of the university to donate secondhand laptops uh, to this group of people. So there, there, there are groups of people who do not have digital access from internet connectivity uh, to even computers and laptops. So, you know, when you say parents work from home, uh, kids study from home, you need two or three laptops. And sometimes people go log in for classes using a phone because there's not enough laptops to go around, right? So COVID is not just a public health crisis. People have talked about COVID as, uh, you know, kind of compounding crisis, crisis upon crisis. And in the media space, we, we talk about it as a crisis of access, uh, digital access. Digital adoption in Singapore is low, lower among uh, certain groups of people, uh, senior citizens, for example, people from lower socioeconomic background, people with disabilities, uh, they, have, uh, they don't have full uh, digital access. So with this kind of embrace of digitalization, I think we need to think about the digital divide that has ensued, it's kind of accentuated uh, that. And I think, you know, kudos to our government. Our government's already sort of recognized that, you know, they're very keen to close the digital uh, divide. And in fact, in the, it's that Singapore readiness, uh, digital readiness blueprint, you know, that sort of frames quite a few uh, ministerial portfolios. Digital inclusion is one of the key KPIs, right? So we need to think of digital access uh, as not just part of public utility, you know, but it should be part of public utility. Everybody should have it. Um, but we need to think of digital access as a public good, 
right? When it benefits the good of the community, it benefits the soul of the nation. So when we think about digital access in this way, uh, it's not just providing the tools and the technology, but also to ensure that people can actually feel safe um, and confident using it. So it's not just about hardware, okay? Uh, but it's also about the infrastructure that sort of support it and the networks um, of people of support around that can continue to provide um, assistance. So digital inclusion is important to the soul of the nation. It makes everyday information and culture accessible to everyone. And through that, right, it helps us to maintain the foundation of who we are as a people and as a nation and how we continue to connect and thrive as an inclusive society. So that's kind of what's happening in the media space with the, the kind of opportunity and the challenge. And now I want to talk about the communication space and what's happening uh, in there. So with everyone online, then, you know, uh, social media communication is rife with misinformation, right? Uh, with COVID alone, the pandemic is also seen as an infodemic. With this sort of avalanche of information uh, bombarding us every day, as well as disinformation and misinformation, you know, all sorts of fake news, first about the cause of the virus, then later on about all these homemade remedies for the virus. And now we see the rise of anti-vaccination misinformation. And this has created echo chambers. It has polarized our society. We've seen that played out in many parts of the world, in the US over the last couple of years, over the last couple of weeks as well. Mm -hmm. And this has eroded our trust in public institutions and with each other. Misinformation threatens the security of any country. Singapore in particular is an open country, but it's a very small country. It's impacted very quickly by any kind of tensions internally and externally. So our challenge then is to find new ways to inoculate ourselves from misinformation. And how are we gonna do that? So I know we have laws like POFMA. I don't want to talk about POFMA. I'm not interested in laws, right? I see the opportunity here as more being on the ground, okay, tied to the soul of the nation. I, we need to promote trust among ourselves and with our institutions. So over last year, my colleague uh, Elmi Nekmat and I started to do uh, media research. We uh, collected uh, newspaper reports on COVID um, from three countries, China, Singapore, and South Korea for the first 100 days of uh, uh, COVID, right? The first 100 days. And we analyzed more than 5,000 articles and looked at the content and realized that, wow, these countries actually are more successful in combating the virus because the media was you know, taking on a public service role at that time. It was really transmitting uh, government messages about safety, about protection, and people really have trust uh, in the media and by default then trust uh, in the government, right? So I'm not saying that, you know, it, it's this, this trust is, is there all the time, but in the case of the COVID mitigation, I think we saw trust uh, in the media uh, in, in that context. So one of the ways we can continue to build trust, okay, is to promote digital well-being. So well-being being one of the buzzwords for this evening. So this is not just about using digital tools for medical access or for our mental well-being, right, our mental health. A lot of people do do that, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, sort of uh, going online for yoga, for meditation and so on mm -hmm. and so forth right now. Uh, but 
digital well-being is really, like I said earlier, it's about our confidence in, in using digital media, uh, our ability to feel safe when we're online, and our capacity to have literacy in order to discern good information from bad information, right? So digital literacy is really uh, kind of central to digital well-being. So digital literacy is, is a little bit like literacy, okay? It's not just about the capacity to read and write, but it's really about the skills that we need to evaluate, to analyze and synthesize information, but to be able to use that information so that we can act on in the world. We can mediate action and engage in the world, right? So just like in literacy, where it kind of draws attention to, okay, can you read, can you write? You know, but more than that, the capacity to shape how information is presented and consumed. So in this sense, digital literacy is part of this kind of social practice that is not just concerned with making meanings out of all these text messages that we're receiving on WhatsApp, for example, that you just receive, you read, you keep forwarding, you keep exchanging and so on and so forth. It's not just only that, you know, but it's also about the way we use and talk about it, the way we, we encode our beliefs and values uh, in them as well. And the way these text messages, for example, uh, socially connect us to each other and, you know, in different uh, contexts. So we need to think about digital literacy, um, not just being able to, you know, download apps and use apps, mm. but more so, you know, in that kind of holistic way to empower us so that we can engage and act on uh, in the world, right? So in the communication space, you know, the, the kind of threat is uh, misinformation. And to address misinformation, then we need to build trust. So to do that, we can we must promote digital well-being. And this is not just about digital inclusion, but also about digital literacy. Digital literacy empowers people. It gives them the capability to judge information and the agency to act, right? And if you can judge information, if you can act, then it really, you are really becoming an enlightened citizen. And if we have a, a country of enlightened citizens, we have a healthy nation. You know, uh, listening to you, Audrey, it's reminded me of something that happened over the course of uh, last year. So with the elderly being more impacted by COVID, I found myself and a lot of friends also, we had an excuse. I mean, not that you needed an excuse, but our parents are not that old, but you kind of were paying more attention to their welfare and their well-being. And I'm happy to report that I think it also has has extended to digital well-being because that conversation has started, that conversation about, you know, COVID kind of generated the conversation about what information should I trust. And so now my mom comes to me if she's a little bit like, I had this conversation with this friend should I, you know, should I pay attention to it? And so, you know, I've taught her how to check hoaxes and there's a whole bunch of things, which are exactly what you're talking about. This is digital well-being and looking after yourself online because I'm hoping she will have many decades online left, you know? So that, that was an interesting uh, reflection as you were talking. Um, Muni, I'd like to bring you in uh, now on the question of challenges and opportunities for the soul of the nation. Muni, are you there? 
Asahi, whether um, yes, I've got it. Oh, you've got it. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that I had to press the unmute button. I was so interested in listening to Audrey's message <laughs> earlier. <laughs> Thanks, Audrey. Thanks, Alpana. In terms of mental health uh, and in terms of where do we go and what happened during this uh, whole COVID, I think one of the big uh, or the great things that has happened for me is that people have come to realize that there's really no health uh, overall without mental health. And, um, and also, I think people have realized that uh, health is so much more important than wealth. And so therefore, you actually have your soul to a certain extent when we start looking at what is really important to us, what is really important to us as individuals, what's really important to us as a country. Um, for us, at, uh, in private healthcare at least, what we have seen is that uh, initially there was a shutdown, but a lot of people were going online to provide support for those who had mental health challenges, the anxiety, the depression, what's going to happen? Are we going to lose our jobs? Are we going to have enough to eat? Uh, will there be enough toilet paper? Oops, right. <laughs> and stuff like that. So there was a lot of stress initially. And one of the things that we first noticed then in society is that when there is stress, it brings up uh, issues that people have never really looked at or questioned in the past. For example, if you're staying at home and you're having to relate to your mother-in-law or father-in-law or others, you suddenly realize that either you have to work at relationship or you're going to be more stressed than ever before. And uh, so these are the things that we see. And, and we've known that during the COVID period, there was an increase in domestic violence. There's an increase in uh, family stress or marital stress. Uh, I guess sometimes people actually go out to work so that they can give themselves space to do other things other than spend time with family as well. I know I used to enjoy that. I, I, I must confess that I was terrible because when I wanted a time out when my children were your age, Kalpana, uh, I would actually like to go to work because my poor wife would have to look after the, the kids. And Well, there was payback time in the evenings, but okay. So that's one of the things is that we've noticed that the stress lines turned up, uh, domestic violence, divorce rates, uh, and people used to find ways to deal with it. And when you try and find ways to deal with it, there are good ways, like those people who went out and we suddenly saw, I mean, it's one of the, never seen so many people in the first four weeks of COVID, uh, never seen so many people jogging or exercising along the streets. Uh, and then there's the not so good ways where uh, suddenly everybody's calling up and saying my alcohol use or my uh, other compulsive behavior use is out of control and I can't cope. So during this period, it's a, it's a time when we, we start to look at uh, what is it that we want as a nation, what is really important for our well-being in our souls and it's most of the time the conclusion that all my clients or patients come and say is that it's not the um it's not the physical stuff that you have as long as you've got enough food to eat um 
it's the relationships, it's the friendships, the the people that you want to talk to, the one people that you want to spend time with, people that you miss when you cannot spend time with them. Okay. Um, the other part that it come to me is, um, you know, it's been said that there's no health without mental health. Um, when I first started, we were the psychiatry was the Cinderella service of the uh, healthcare services of Ministry of Health. Okay, nobody really, they, it is good to have, but if you don't have also, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think people are slowly starting to change their mind now. They uh, think that, okay, it's more than good to have. And one of the things which I'm hoping for, because people, uh, the two things that have happened here during this COVID period, one is people have had a lot more information about what's important and how to take care of their own emotional health, whether it is watching a great play online or doing other things as uh, family or with friends. Uh, so people are learning better how to take care of their physical and mental health. And the second is that when there are issues or when there are stresses or when there are emotional stuff which has been buried, for example, trauma and other stuff, COVID has given people permission to be not okay. It's given people permission that uh, it's okay to be not okay. I can say that I'm really not feeling well. Uh, I, I can't cope because there are lots of people in this period who really can't cope. And that gives them permission to go out, seek help, uh, or talk about issues at least. And in talking comes healing as well. And one of the big uh, wishes that I have is that as this goes on, we don't fall back, but we continue to realize that um, uh, mental health services, addiction services deserve also equality in terms of uh, the amount of effort put into them by the government and by the insurance agencies. Mm -hmm. That we should also look that not only the physical health is important, but the mental health of our citizens. Thanks, Muni. That was uh, very reflective. Asahi, we've been looking forward to hearing your um, your contribution on the challenges and opportunities in, in the space of sports, particularly for mass participation, because that's kind of like I think a lot of a lot of us understand why we should, as individuals, play sport. But um, as a community, please tell us. Thanks, Kalpan. And uh, I think uh, that's a great, great place to start. So perhaps my starting point is, you know, we're absolutely preaching to the converted when we discuss why sport is so good for so many reasons. Um, I think it was a former chief medical officer of the UK who said, you know, if physical activity was a drug, it would be regarded as a miracle cure. You know, in terms of the health benefits it provides, obviously, Muni is fully familiar with the mental health aspects as well. And also the cohesion aspects, you know, team sports brings communities together, uh, clubs bring communities together, you have to learn to cooperate, you have to learn to compete fairly, all the good things that ultimately nurture the soul, I think, of a community and a country. So there's a, it's all good in that sense. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing at the moment is a real disruptive period that I think has opportunities, but also comes with a few caveats and warnings. So I think the first opportunity we're seeing, and I would say this was massively accelerated by COVID, is exactly that starting point of 
we all knew it's good for us. And yet we kind of always never got around to it. A lot of people, right? But I think surveys sort of during and post COVID has clearly shown the number of people who, that increased in terms of their recognition of the value and the importance of physical activity mm-hmm. to their well-being and to their lives. So as soon as people couldn't go out, the once a day exercise suddenly became an absolute necessity and a godsend to their well-being. And I think we managed to move from what was perhaps academic knowledge to more of a uh, realization or internal understanding of what it meant to me in terms of the importance of physical activity. And I think that's the first step to getting people more active. So that's a positive aspect. And the second positive aspect um, is the technology that um, Audrey talked about um, has just fundamentally brought about a completely new way of participating. So historically, even if you thought you wanted to get active, unless you perhaps joined a traditional club that played on a Wednesday night, you know, down in a particular location, the opportunities perhaps weren't there. And now technology has meant that you can almost consume whatever physical activity in whatever shape, time and flavor you want, anywhere you want practically. And that um, almost uh, ability for everyone to access a form of physical activity that they could probably manage has suddenly blown open the doors of the ability to take part, the accessibility to take part. So combined with the mindset shift and the understanding, as well as the means to do so, it's all pointing towards a good direction where we could potentially get, you know, communities more active. Mm -hmm. And this is, I guess, where I come perhaps to the the threat to all this, which is there is a double-edged sword that we're seeing in a lot of these things. And I think for the fact that we can now do what we want, it has tended to meant that people will do activity by themselves. So rather than trying to force yourself to get to the football club on a Wednesday night, you just say, well, I'm just gonna go for a run at seven o'clock in the morning by myself. And all of these effects is seeing a big trend, this is global, um, of a move away from team sports or traditional, you know, cooperative competitive sport to individual exercises and just physical activity. Now from a health benefit and perhaps even a mental health benefit, it has perhaps the same impact. But from the social impact, you're losing all that goodness around community, interaction with others, working together, et cetera, which is so crucial to nurturing, I think, the soul of a nation. So that's one watch out, which is the technology has enabled people to be alone and individual. And so we need to find a way that in the new way they want to be active, we can still bring them together. So that might be, for example, if people enjoy running, how can we create running clubs where people still yeah, run, yeah. but actually within the community. And Park Run is a great example that I think, you know, I'd encourage all of you to just have a look at where it essentially just said, turn up on to your local park at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning in the UK. And they're all across the country. And, and literally it was a 5K run that they timed you for. And before you knew it, it had millions of people turning up every yeah. Saturday at nine o'clock and it became a whole cult almost. So there are ways to turn individual exercise still into that community, community force. So I think that's one thing to watch out for. The other side, I think an example is something like esports. So technology has uh, enabled and opened up the door to perhaps a demographic or a population of segment that wouldn't have traditionally been taking part in physical sport. Mm. All of a sudden found a space where they can actually, you know, compete and show off their skills within a sporting uh, arena. 
and through that actually build communities and generate social interactions in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have done otherwise in the past. Now, again, this is the double-edged sword. For every hour that's spent gaming, you're probably not spending that outside playing football or running or being physically active. But perhaps, you know, that hour that would have been spent alone for that guy, for that child or young person is now being spent in a community where they feel part of a team and perhaps some of the social aspects of traditional sport is still being successfully generated. So I think with each of these changes, while it can enable improved activity and participation, there is a, a, a danger that needs to be managed. And I think that's where the responsibility comes to us and policymakers around the world mm-hmm. to say, how do we enable the good while trying to mitigate and manage the risk of the downside? And I think just to bring it all together, I guess you started the session by talking about, you know, by soul, I guess broadly we're talking about well-being. And I think, you know, well-being is 100% at the heart of, I think, Singaporean, the Singaporean salt in many ways. And that's why I believe that actually this modern way of consuming physical activity and and being well will be fundamentally uh, an important part of Singapore's soul going forward as people recognise and discover the joy of uh, being physically active. Yes, I I, I mean, it's, um, it's interesting to also sort of think about what you're saying in the context of what we see happening, not just with adults, but also with with kids. I know that my nephews are more comfortable, perhaps they surprise me, they're comfortable approaching strangers because, you know, like a kid they don't know has the same app and they've connected via the app, but they're not quite sure how to say hello to their grandmother when she visits. So it's it's this this, um, new worlds that are opening up creating new behaviors Mm -hmm. and we're watching it happen and I guess also responding to it at the same time so some thought was has to go into that into that and if I could just you know finish exactly on what you're saying I think the point about nurturing is really important the reason why I think traditionally sport has been such an important part of society is you know it teaches you a whole bunch of skills as you're growing up you know everything from learning to lose to playing by the rules to working together with other people to you know respect all those things so i think that's why the actual format in which we participate i.e is it by yourself or with others you know and the means so is it just through a computer game or are we actually getting that physical in, and and you know in face-to-face interaction i think does matter um especially when it comes to the impact it can have on nurturing the national soul. So the questions are coming in thick and fast from our audience. So I actually want to sort of um, go to them now. And actually, we've got a question on, you know, the soul of the nation and whether or not the development of the soul of the nation should be fully organic or whether, you know, it's always going to be contrived to some extent. And I think um, Asahi, your point is an interesting one to maybe elaborate on in, in light of the question, because we are talking, you are talking about sort of, I guess, crafting. You're crafting these experiences. We know that uh, the, the social aspect is important, but now we have to think about how to actually craft those experiences so that people gravitate towards that as opposed to doing it by themselves. Um, so do you want to say a little bit more maybe with some specific examples if you have some sure so i think it's we've got to be careful we don't get into that danger of you know organic is letting everything just be free for all and 
you know, otherwise the other option is that everything is controlled and micromanaged and planned. I, I don't think that's a dichotomy here. Um, the starting point is, I think, the fact that people recognize they want to be physically active in the ideal world. And they believe, I think, that their best self will be an active self. You know, so I think that part is an organic will and a desire. And from that point of view, um, as I say, there's greater recognition of that under COVID and so on. But broadly, I think we could you know, take it that that is something that we all probably do want to be, even if we're not being active at the moment. So I think the role of you know, the government or anybody else in policymaking is how do you enable that to allow people to be able to do the things they want to do and be active? And that's where I think we need to, there are lots of ways of doing it. So one example is, well, we typically talk in sport about, um, you know, time, access and uh, cost. So those are the three things that typically determine if someone can get around to doing it. And all of those things, I think, are being changed in the way that the world is consuming sports. So a really good example is the advent of cycle lanes in major cities globally. So I think we've all seen during lockdown and you know, COVID and, and circuit breaker, literally you couldn't buy a bicycle if you tried because every single person in Singapore had decided that they were going to start cycling. Um, and that is the energy I think that the you know the government and the policymakers can think at, think about and go how do we enable that natural desire to, for people wanting to cycle can we make dedicated cycle lanes you know and obviously pcns are a great example in singapore of how that's been enabled but i think those are the kind of things about how we do that another great example is a lot of people want to basically do exercise at home for whatever reason because it's convenient with their children or and so on and the modern world has allowed it but how do we make sure that we can then generate some kind of physical or some kind of network around that and that might be then about supporting those fitness instructors who are doing it online with the infrastructure and perhaps the support to enable them to create communities and to actually do more than just talk to a video camera and you know switch it off at the end of that and i think one of the most important examples is that esport you know it keeps coming back again and again and again and perhaps this is the area where the downsides are real um, has been recognized. I think career is a great example where the greatest addiction problems that career has is gaming. You know, mm -hmm. it's above any other addiction and it's become a, such a social problem that they have enforced quite strict laws about certain under 18 not being able to access, you know, physically access gaming after a certain number of hours or whatever it is. And these kind of um, management uh, I, sort of policies, I guess, are seen to be necessary in the world of gaming. Um, and I think that probably is an area where the government and policymakers around the world can't really turn a blind eye because without it, I think there is a real danger that that will, it's so powerful right now, the growth is so powerful right now, um, that without management, I think there is always a risk that we'll lose so much of the benefits that that whole arena could bring. So I think that's my sort of, <laughs> answer it for what it's worth, which is to say, you know, there is, I think, we, we I think an organic will and a awareness that being physically active with other people, we it's something we all think and believe is a good thing and we should be doing it. And whatever we can do to enable that, to, in, to allow that to happen, I think flowing with the tide of the disruptive changes happening in society. So mm. not trying to go back to what it used to be, actually saying how organic happening. and 
Organic plus. Yes, something like that, maybe. Um, Janice, I want to bring you in on this question as well, because perhaps you have some ideas for what can be done specific to the arts, given where things stand now. Um, in what respect? Um, pertaining to what? In particular? So the question was, you know, sort of, should it just be, should, should developing the soul of a place just be organic or will it be contrived to some extent? And so Asahi has kind of gone through some examples of how we might actually sort of ride the wave of how the situation is in, this, in, in sports at the moment to build those communities and to build those experiences. So you've talked about, you know, the state of play for the arts now and how things have changed. I was just uh, curious if you had any, I guess, more like examples or particular suggestions. Um, I mean, I feel that, um, I think people like to think of the arts or as a manifestation uh, or rather as soul in, in and of itself, but it isn't. Um, yeah. It is made up of, it's comprised of so many other things and and what artists do and what the art does is that it waits, it listens, it watches, it observes, it processes and then it tells the story. The story that we individually, might re it might resonate with us or as a group, it might resonate with us. So in that sense, it is a lot of, in a lot of ways a response, not so much um, trying to change the way people think about yeah. themselves. Do you know what I mean? Um, I understand. Uh, I, so I was... sense, um, despite the fact that I think um, there are threats uh, to how we consume and commune around the arts, I also still feel there's a lot of optimism because, wow, what an amazing creative... Uh, interesting time that we live in and I'm sure even right now while the the art scene may not be thriving in the same way that we know it the buzz may not be there but everyone's back home they're processing they are in their own little holes caves um, observing how we're doing and I think it's just a matter of time before the novels the music the writing the mm. plays will come out around the angst the anxiety the joys that we are all sort of like collectively going through it's just it's just when and and how this story will end and that's for us as individuals and as a society to decide not the artist the artist just holds up the mirror yes reflections this is a reflection okay so let's go to the next question by um by kelly uh to what extent do government and governance play a role in influencing the soul and unity of a nation, or is it something cultural and ground up? Um, Audrey, I'd like to bring you in on this, and you can always ask me to repeat a question as well if you'd like. Okay, um, so I think when we think about the soul of the nation in the context of culture, uh, there will always be, uh, it, it is everyday organic on the one hand, like I, I said before, but on the other hand, there's, there's always a particular, what we call the, the 
government governmental framing of culture, right? Mm. So the governmental framing of culture is 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 you know you want to think about it broadly, you know, and this very much relates to the arts and culture sector. How how do governments fund the, the, the sector is funded by the government? There are certain rules and guidelines and all sorts of grants, you know, artists and art organizations can apply for. So uh, and that produces a particular uh, uh, modality of culture, if you like, right? So um, and uh, you know, sort of I think good cultural policy, arts and cultural policy making will want to respond uh, to the voices of the artists, the voices of the people. And so it should, you know, that is how uh, policy can enable, uh, you know, sort of new art and culture uh, productions to come into play in order to, to bring the nation together in order to, to express um, who, who we are and you know who we want to be, right? Our forms of becoming. So that's the the the, the kind of uh, governmental uh, framing of culture. You know that's uh, you know and 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 when I when I talk about that, it it's very narrow, right? It's only just the arts and culture sector. Whereas you know if we talk about all the ways we've been hearing tonight about mm-hmm. the soul of the nation. That sort of everyday culture, community, solidarity, uh, even you know to, to commune, you know, alone or you know on, on esports uh, and so on and so forth. That's very much you know broader and wider, and that you know in a way can it 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 is part organic, uh, but but also a lot of these. I think we've been talking a lot about uh, cultural participation in sports, right? Uh, Asahi talked a lot about participating and, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, I think we need to to widen the arenas of cultural participation so that it's not, you know, it's sports and it can be more than sports. Uh, it's arts and culture, but um, it's more than that as well. So incidentally, if you look at the UNESCO definition of what constitutes culture, sports and recreation and leisure activity are part of that broad definition, mm. including visual arts and performing arts as well. So we need to widen uh, the domains uh, of cultural participation. And if we do that, then, you know, the kind of governmental framing of culture will uh, sort of come, there'll that, that, be a lot more resources, a lot more funding. We can make spaces, activities available uh, for everyone, including uh, enhancing neighborhood spaces. And neighborhood spaces are really, really important for the vitality and the vibrancy of uh, the community, the place, and the, ultimately the, the nation as well. So, so this, yes. This is actually a great segue to this great question that's come in, right? Um, and it is all about sort of expanding, expanding the notion. And that's what we set out to do uh, in this conversation. So the question from um, Fiakra is, to what extent does our surrounding environment serve as a carrier of memories for our collective identity? What does this mean when Singapore is constantly being transformed and perpetually redeveloped? Um, Muni, do you want to come in and, uh, and take a stab at this question? Well, I think one of the things that it tells me is that you're, you're right. We are constantly changing and constantly developing our soul, so to speak. But as far as I recall, no country really has made great leaps during times when everything is going well. It's only in times of adversity that 
you know, just like after the Second World War, during the uh, Cold War, um, and the arts and science, the arts came out so strongly in Czechoslovakia and Hungary and all the other countries. And the same thing that happens here, um, it is during adversity and while the government can put the lead by making available spaces, by saying that these are things that we would like uh, to see in our social space, it is the community groups that are going to come out and say, can we do this? Can we do that? Can we look after the people who are, don't have, and look at it the way that we looked after the migrant workers and suddenly people have got into the space and said that, hey, the, our migrant workers are not uh, in a, such a rich country. We are not, they're not being treated as they should. And so many different groups and people have started to stand up and, and come forward to make the changes that are necessary. I've never seen, even in my own church, I've never seen so many times when people suddenly are taking out uh, migrant workers for meals or other things. So it, it is in adversity that we start to see the transformation and the real important parts of transformation that take place. What about the, I guess the question was also kind of, uh, getting us to connect soul of the nation to our surrounding environment, so the place. So Singapore is a place that, you know, is constantly undergoing change. Um, we often, I'm, I'm sure some of you also have experience of, you know, not having the places that you grew up still exist anymore. Um, and that sort of longing and the, the fact that it's not there you know, does it affect us? Uh, how important is place? So we've talked about sports, we've talked about the arts. Um, so I'm kind of pushing you guys to examine the importance of place and, you know, what we do in the face of it being transformed. I think that there, are, there are some things in conservancy where we do have a lot of places which still maintain their old world charm. And uh, to that part, we must thank uh, whoever is in charge of National Heritage Board or conservation. And I must say in town planning too, there's been a lot that there, you can still find Pulau Ubin, you can still find uh, Sungai Bolo and a huge number of other real green spots to look forward to, which haven't changed all that much since I was a youth. Janice, you, had, you came in earlier. I wanted to jump in because I feel that I think it's hugely important. I think that it is a storehouse of memories. And if soul is partly comprised of memories, um, shared memories, then uh, we need to be quite mindful about what we choose to preserve and how we find the right balance between preservation and development. I think it's a perpetual question Singapore will always face because we are so small. small. Because we need to you know, battle against many things in order to do well as a very small republic and nation. Nevertheless, um, it's a real challenge, um, but I've always spoken up for tipping towards the side of trying to keep things around as far as we can until we can't. <laughs> as opposed to um, thinking about it as thinking of it as a, you know, sometimes I feel government likes to sort of like pit the past with the future, constantly saying, you know, would, you know, for, for the sake of your grandchildren, 
we should, you know, tear some of these spaces down because we need to make room for their opportunities and their progress. But I feel like we shouldn't always be put, put, you know, sort of pitting these against each other because we also have a responsibility to a certain legacy and preserving a legacy for our grandchildren so that we have stories to tell our grandchildren and that the space cannot just sort of like constantly adapt, renew itself until we forget where we come from and who we are. Yeah. It's a, it's a topic that I'm very torn about because, like you said, you know, it's, a, it's going to be a perennial problem for a small, uh, a small country. Um, one of the things that used to really bug me was that none of the playgrounds I used to play at as a child exist anymore. Um, <laughs> and I don't know why. It's just, it's, it's just something that, um, that, that gets me on, on a deep level. And a friend of mine who... Um, who oh, a friend of mine from who herself had a very sort of a gypsy existence. So she was born in Australia. She lived with her parents. Her, she, she calls her parents. Her father is actually a dentist, but they just loved moving places. So they lived all around the world. And, and she told me that her parents had this habit where they had like a kind of a bag of knickknacks that they would unwrap at every location and then set up and she said that every time she saw these little knickknacks in the house regardless of whether it was in Germany or in Australia or in the UK or wherever else that they moved she felt at home and I thought to myself well that's a that's a good one for Singaporeans because even though we're not necessarily moving the spaces are changing and um, it's about finding a way to be in touch with space when you don't have space, you know? Um, yeah, you know, you, what you were saying just reminded me of it because I, I too think it's important. Can I come in, Kalbani? Yes, a, yes a, please. A thought, which I think is, um, I, I just outside in perhaps, I actually think the perpetual ability Singapore has to renew innovate, experiment, and to quite often perfect something that you know, is, is sort of a world's first. I would say that's also part of Singapore's soul in many ways. Um, and so while I can definitely understand that nostalgia of our generation's experiences when we were growing up, I can imagine, you know, today's youth when they're older saying, oh, do you remember that time when we used to go rock climbing inside that mall, which might by that point have changed completely as being a complete, you know, a different thing and so on. So I think for each generation, you're always going to have your own memories, which will keep changing and developing. Mm. And perhaps that in itself can be a form of the Singaporean soul. But um, the other, other reflection I was having as you were speaking was, I think sports consumption. So I'm talking about spectatorship, you know, following your teams and so on and so forth. That can also, I think, have a place in the kind of memory bank of, you know, a nation and so on. So the four-year cycles of Olympics, you know, the World Cups, mm -hmm. even if it's that you're supporting a team in the English Premier League with your friends, I think supporting sport can also actually form a memory that can be carried through, you know, yeah. with the longevity of sports throughout your whole life. And that can, again, be that little bag of things that you were talking about almost, one of those things that could be there. I think is, is sort of sporting um, affiliation and, and support. I think uh, sure. be a whole generation of football lovers who remember the Kalang Roar, who followed the Malaysia exactly. Cup. Exactly. I was just thinking, <laughs> 1994 Malaysia Cup. <laughs> totally a 
disagree with you and and mourn mourn the loss of that spirit yeah um okay let's go to another question so we have a question about <laughs> i noticed the panel has no scientist very artsy um do you have any thoughts about what it means to make engaging with science a soulful experience i thought this is a little bit uh more left field and to get your thoughts on can the advances of science be soulful do we think about them when we're thinking about what is soulful Is anybody want to come in on this? Audrey, I see you nodding a little bit. Do you want to take a stab at this question? Um, yes. No, I I wasn't actually nodding, but I will respond. Uh, you know, I, I I don't really have any you know sort of specific response to this, but um, I think, as with all of us on this panel, from artists to you know kind of uh, uh, sports you know kind of consultant uh, to myself as as an academic teacher, all of us find you know joy in the work that we do, right? You know, yes. so I would imagine a scientist you know that. would would find you know that that moment you know that eureka moment you know of discovery and um and that on a personal level could be personal uh success but then when um you know a vaccine you know that mm. one invents uh benefits uh the whole planet you know then you know that that would really uh be you, you don't even need to have a vaccine to to benefit the whole planet right but you know just a little scientific discovery any kind of innovation that will make change to someone's life you know to to uh uh you know uh, uh, uh some aspect of of uh, community's uh well-being i think uh science uh could the the kind of inventions of of science and the discoveries of science could also be uh uh are, are indeed part of all these all the things we've talked about as part of you know the the soul of the nation right i, mean, I think also i can just thinking about international examples where i think there are cultures where you know science and engineers and so on and medics are at the top of that list of things that a country holds dear as part of its identity so You know, one example came to mind is the medics in Cuba. Yeah, Cuba's oh yes, absolute pride in its medical. You know, uh, around the world, and they diplomatically, you know, send their doctors out everywhere around the world. <laughs> I think that's part of their soul. I'm sure of it. And maybe you know, uh, perhaps slightly less so, but certainly the engineers and the scientists. You know, the mechanics of Germany. You know, have a real pride in that German uh, engineering prowess, and that's part of very much their culture. So I think, in that sense, yes, science can I think have a place alongside everything else. As given, I mean, it is an intellectual and human endeavor um, that contributes to society's well-being. And so, you know, where that's a strength in a particular country, I think it absolutely can form part of itself. Perhaps. <laughs> no, I, I think it's an interesting question, and I. I decided to um, ask you guys that question because science is an interesting one. I feel like although the scientific method is not emotional, I feel like often the advances of science are not embraced 
with the same warmth that we might embrace what sport or art gives us. And um, this doesn't mean that, uh, you know, science will have a lot, of, a lot more money. I'm not talking about that. And sometimes I feel like it's nice to remind people that the fact that those advances are happening are changing, it's changing our society and allowing us to do a lot of things. Um, you know, it's just good to remember that. Um, so I want to ask a, a question that is perhaps, I'd like to bring Muni in on this first, and then if you guys have any ideas, then please jump in. There's been this sort of, where did the question go? This question, this, this thing about how people are more open to seeking mental help, but in some sense, feels like there's still a lot more that can be done in this area. It feels like there's still a stigma attached to asking for um, help. Um, how can the government or individuals further encourage healthy mental health habits and importantly decrease the barrier to help seeking? Muni? Do you mind if I answer do you mind if I answer the, the last question first about scientists? I'm very upset that I'm not considered a science person. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, okay, but besides that, I would like to say that actually as a nation, we are actually very proud of the fact that we have uh, credibility that our universities and our science institutes among the top in the region and some in some places even in the world. That's why we can produce uh, uh, either the, the test for COVID or the, all the other things that can be done. And I think as a nation, or as, scientists are actually quite uh, sexy. It, being a nerd is not a disadvantage in a lot of our schools in Singapore. And, not at all. Okay, what was the question again? Now? The question on mental health. <laughs> Um, How can we... was that, you know, yes, it has improved um, tremendously our ability to, to say that we need help, but it still feels like there's a stigma attached to saying that you would like some help. Um, and how can we, how can the government as well as individuals uh, further encourage healthy mental health habits and decrease the barrier to help seeking? I think there's a number of things that can be done. And the first is that we have to understand that people usually, and they don't realize this, that people are only as sick as their secrets. And one of the biggest problems that I have is when people come in to see me and tell me that, oh, by the way, doc, I'd like you to know that I actually have got no problems. Back of my mind, I'm wondering, okay, why are you here to see me then? Okay, this is very interesting. But uh, it's so important because in our culture, we want to save face and save lots of things. And, I, you know, in addiction recovery, I'm sorry to sound a bit crude, but there's a saying that says that you cannot save your, your uh, ass and your face at the same time. You can't save your, your life uh, if you're going to hide things. And basically, that's where we are teaching us as a society to be a little bit more open, allowing it to be okay to talk about disabilities or to feel sadness or to feel uh, difficult things, maybe even in the school levels, 
in secondary schools and for you in, in many countries, they actually start teaching resilience skills in school. How do you know when somebody is suffering? How do you know when a friend of yours is having a problem? What do you do if uh, a colleague's parents in school uh, are divorcing and how do you provide the support? Because it's not only the, the hard skills of learning math, science uh, and all the other things, but also we go to school because I enjoyed playing uh, plastic ball and all the other things, the socialization, the uh, running around and coming into class sweaty and stuff like that. But also uh, looking after each other and uh, when somebody was in trouble, uh, helping them out. Um, even to today, my 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 classmate, one of my classmates from 40 odd years ago had a rough time and lost a leg and had other things happen. And it's quite amazing how uh, maybe through the social media and everything else through Facebook, we could all come together and support that person. But basically, if you're asking about the mental health, how do we get that? We have to give people permission at an early age that it's okay to be not okay. It's okay to talk about issues and uh, grow together and strengthen one another like that. It's, it's not okay to say that nothing is a problem. The worst families that we see nowadays are the ones who constantly say that, no, there's nothing, there's no problem. There's, I don't have anything and the problems are staring uh, at you like elephants in the room. Well, I'm very glad I, um, I asked this question because we are running out of time and I actually want to give, give you guys now time to maybe wrap up your thoughts and share with the audience sort of, I guess, your final reflections. Um, but Muni, thank you so much because I think what you just said helped the audience but also helped all of us on the panel to remember that we can't um, cave our ass in our face at the same time. <laughs> so... Um, do any of you want to go first in terms of closing remarks? I've already given mine. You've given, okay. <laughs> Asahi? Sure. Um, I think my overall reflection is we're living through a time where there is now more need than ever to be physically active and well, um, not just for mental health, but for physical health and everything else um, that we know. And I think it is a time when we have had, we now have more opportunity than ever to be able to do so. So I think it's an op, you know, a necessary, but also an op, optimistic time going forward um, about physical activity. And mm. one big trend that I see happening, and I, I'm happy for it, is sport and physical activity used to be an extracurricular or a you know entertainment sector or a nice to have and now it's beginning to become a central government issue policy issue it's becoming a central issue in people's lives and that integration of actually just being um, physically active and well i think uh, is hopefully going to become just part of our well our national soul if you know what i mean of every country um, that allows us to be who we want to be. So I think it's a, it's a note of optimism. It's, there's a long way to go yet still, but um, I'm hopeful. Thank you, Asahi. Janice? Um, I, I, looking forward, let's say looking to 2030, um, 
I am hopeful. I am optimistic, uh, despite what we're going through right now. But also, it, you know, because of what we're going through right now, I feel that we are building a, a, a generation of people who um, have a part, such a, an important part now to play in building and creating the future that will be different uh, from what we know, from what we have experienced. Um, and as a result, I actually might become more united in, in a very, in, in, in their own way. Yet, because of the trauma of COVID, yet sensitive to differences and sensitive to those who have less, those who do not have. Uh, so I, you know, this, this whole past year, seeing people rally together around whether or not it's marginalized groups or migrant communities um, have given me a lot of hope that as, as Singaporeans, we become a lot more empathetic to people who have for many, many decades now been invisible, yet important to our progress. Um, and that's where I feel like our heart has a chance to blossom, to bloom, you know, you know, uh, and I and, and I think that's 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 wonderful for Singapore, and that and that maybe when we define progress, prosperity, and 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 happiness for our nation, we look at contribution as part and parcel of our growth and our development. Contribution back to society. Um, the only thing that sort of like I'm kind of it's still a question in my head is that if soul is about a certain shared collective experience of um, living together, what happens as people go more and more online and, and sharing that experience digitally? What does that do to our shared perception as a nation when the person who is online communing with other people in other worlds and universes and, you know, spaces start to develop more and more links with those uh you know having more linkages and connections and threads uh with people online than actually with the people they are physically living with what impact does that have on our soul uh that i don't have an answer to that but uh i think that's something worth um, thinking about as we as we grow and move forward Thank you, Janice. I think that I think those thoughts and that those those final questions that you had on a lot of people's minds because it's something that we're encountering more and more, and none of us have the answers. So it's good that we, you know, keep mulling over that. Um, Audrey. Uh, yes. So I, I think what we're seeing now, I, I don't think we even need to wait for a post-pandemic moment to to see the, the zeitgeist, you know, in, in the cultural renaissance that, that Janice was pointing to at the start mm -hmm. of the talk. I think we're starting to see a lot of new digital forms, new aesthetic forms, a lot of young artists very uh, eager to show work. Um, and so, you know, increased participation in all aspects. Uh, that, that is a good thing, uh, you know, in the kind of broader, wider cultural space. Um, but I worry, I worry that when um, artists give art away for free and, um, you know, what 
what will happen, right? So we see a lot of uh, free artwork now because there's a lot of virtual exhibitions, virtual everything. Uh, uh, but at the same time, we also see a lot of democratization uh, of the arts as well, where, uh, you know, prof- community artists, professional artists, lay people like you and me can take a photo, can write something in a notebook, notebook and have that as part of an exhibition in very prestigious organizations like the National Gallery of Singapore. So I think there is the, the increased participation, new aesthetic form, and the new democratization of the arts. But I think we need to think about the sustainability uh, of arts and culture. So giving away art for free is not sustainable. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, sooner or later venues will have to charge uh, full price uh, so that they can at least uh, break even, right? So the, the, the takeaway I think in terms of the, the how to sustain the soul of the nation, how to sustain um, the culture of the nation. The, the key word here is really sustainability. It's really about cultural sustainability. How do we then uh, you know, um, pass on, right? How do we maintain all our practices, including the new practices that have come, come to the fore, arts, heritage, everyday life? How do we maintain that and pass that on, all these tangible and intangible assets to the next generation in such a way that will provide them wealth and resources to to flourish and thrive uh, in the future. So here we really need to be very mindful of the distribution uh, of resources from one generation to the next to allow for intergenerational uh, prosperity, uh, intergenerational equality, and intergenerational justice, right? So so that's that's how I see the the kind of, uh, that's how I, I would see the the, the, the kind of practices that we need to, to make culture sustainable, to think about cultural sustainability. And if we can sustain our culture in that way, then we can sustain what nurtures the soul of the nation. Thanks, Audrey. I mean, I think listening to you, you're in a way talking about um, ensuring that we keep our purpose in mind, right? And we are thinking about the soul of the nation and what we pass on. Uh, this was a theme that came up um, in the discussions on environment. Again, you can see, you can immediately see the connections um, because when we start talking about intergenerationally, what are we leaving behind? The environment is a very interesting question to mull over. And I guess the soul of the nation, we can also think about that way because like you said, you know, sustainability of what we pass on um, so it kind of dictates the intergenerational justice of it all. Um, this has been an incredible honour for me and a real privilege to have this chat with the four of you. Uh, it's been so varied and wide-ranging and um, it's been a real treat. I hear the optimism that's coming, that's there about what the future holds, what um, can be created in a way that connects all of us. I also hear the, the caveats and, you know, the things, the questions that we really should as a society um, be thinking about more seriously because we don't have the answers to them yet. So with that, I want to extend my sincere thanks uh, to all of you. Thank you so much. Um, to the audience, thank you for contributing to the discussion with your questions. Uh, do feel free to continue 
the uh, discussion, the comments on the Soul of the Nation uh, session topic in the conference chat. We will be taking all your inputs um, to our final day plenary sessions on the 25th of January, as well as to the IPS Reimagining Singapore 2030 project. Um, so with that, we now are going to take a break for a few days from the conference and our next session, the next conference session is on um, multilateralism and global cooperation, which will begin at 10 a.m. on Tuesday, the 19th of January. We look forward to seeing you all then. Uh, once again, thank you to the speakers so much. Have a good and restful night. Bye-bye. Thank Thanks, Safana. Thanks, IPS.